You're listening to a Broadmoor Podcast production. Well, good morning, church. How are we? Great. If you have your Bibles, would you open to Romans chapter 16, the final chapter in this incredible letter. We have made it, church family, 30 weeks in this series, uh, and we praise God for all that he has done, uh, and it's been just so good. How about we just start back over Romans 1 next week, and anybody feel good about that? Okay, well, we'll think about it. Don't say no just yet, okay? Um, but as we, we jump in, we, uh, if today's day one, we want to welcome you to Broadmoor. We have, we have walked for quite some time through this incredible letter, 16 chapters. Uh, Lord willing, today we will finish up 16, uh, and and 30 weeks of, of preaching through this, this letter. And what we've seen are a lot of things. Paul is the apostle who writes this letter. Uh, we, we have to remember that, that he writes this letter longing to be with the people, but has not yet been released by God, by the Spirit, to, to go and be with them just yet. Uh, so he writes to them. He, he writes uh, encouragement to them. And so when we see this, this letter, we, we get the first part of it. It's, it's primarily theological, meaning it is, it is heavily on doctrine, theology, why we believe what we believe. Then we get towards the middle and end of this letter, and we get application of that doctrine, application of the theology. Uh, and then we get to chapters 15 and 16. And, and, and really, we, we kind of jokingly call these the, the mama and them passages. Um, because Paul kind of ends this letter even different than the other letters that he writes. And it's giving a shout out to anybody and everybody that's ever played a role in the ministry of Paul's life to the people in Rome. And we're going to speak more to that in just a second. But as we look back, and if you are able just to take a, take a, a mental step back and look across your New Testament, what you're going to realize is the Apostle Paul writes an awful lot of it. This is a man who, in the beginning of his life, grew up to be a Pharisee of the Pharisees. He, he is a man who knew God's word, but didn't know God. And it wasn't until he was on his way to Damascus to, to go and find and arrest and maybe even kill people who were considered to be a part of the way that would be Christians, that the Lord Jesus met him on the road, blinded him, gave him a new identity and a new passion for life. And it was from there that the Apostle Paul embarks on this remaining life ministry. That he will spend every breath he has left on this side of eternity making much of Jesus. And the way he writes, and the way that he encourages, and the way that he exhorts is breathtakingly awesome. But I remember as I was in, in college, being a college student and falling in love with God's word and, and reading through the Pauline letters, reading through what Paul writes to the churches, I remember going to 1 Corinthians in, in chapter 11, and Apostle Paul says something to this effect, Follow me as I follow Christ. Emulate me. Do what I'm doing as I follow Jesus. And I remember reading that and being automatically overwhelmed at that thought. Because I, I know the Bible says, be holy for God is holy. Like, like I understand there is a call on our life for that. But for some reason, I don't find the same tension because I know deep down inside my heart, I am not God. I know that Christ is perfect and I am not, but in his grace, he calls me to himself. And so I, I, can, I can kind of find some peace there. But when the apostle Paul, who is a human, just like you and I, who has fallen, has a fallen nature, just like yours and mine, 
says, hey, all the things that I've done, you can do too, and you should be doing as well. There's something about that that is overwhelming to me. And then we get to the end of this beautiful letter. I would say, personally, I believe this is Paul's most powerful letter. And what we begin to see is something, something bigger is at, 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 at hand. Some, something bigger is at stake. And so the question begins to come into your mind. And I don't know if you've ever done this with people that you see. And you wonder, how did they do that? Like, like how, how do they live their life this way and seem to have the, everything together? And I'm not talking about how we look around, and I know we do it, in, in our everyday world today. But when we read the Bible, have you ever just looked and, and, and seen some of these characters, some, some of these, these personalities and thought, God, how did they do that? How was the Apostle Paul that faithful for that long and seemingly was on the top of his game at all times? Now, let's be sure he is not perfect. And also, let's be sure the pen is mighty. And as Paul writes, no doubt he's not going to declare the worst days he ever has. But what he writes is breathtakingly awesome. And so the question that we now begin to ask is, okay, if Paul is saying to us in 1 Corinthians 11, to all Christians, that we should emulate him as he follows Christ, are we doing that? What's keeping us from that? And the question now comes for me, how did he do it? And so today, in this final chapter, I think we get the clearest picture on how the apostle Paul was able to accomplish all that he did and how you and I are going to be able to be accomplishing all that we have been called to do. Now, with, with that being said, I'd love for us to, to jump in to, to Romans chapter 16, and, and we're going to start in verse 1, okay? And, and just, I want to warn you, I want to pique your interest just a little bit. Uh, what you are about to hear, if you grow up Southern Baptist, it's going to be a lot of fun for you, because it's going to be a little bit different. But it's okay, remember, I'm just the messenger, You take it up with the Apostle Paul, you take it up with Jesus, I'm your preacher and I love you. Are you ready? Let's go. Romans 16 verse 1. I commend commend you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at Synchria, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and help her in whatever she may need from you, for she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. So right out of the gate, now there are going to be a lot of names, and what you're going to learn is Phoebe is about the easiest one to say. Okay, we're we're going to get there in a minute, and you're going to give me grace, and we're all going to have fun, okay? But Phoebe is the first one out of the gate, and he spends the most time on her name, or at least telling you about who she is and what she's done. And it's really important that we understand who Phoebe is and what she's doing right here. So who is Phoebe? The best we can understand is that she is a wealthy Gentile lady from Corinth. That's where Paul's writing this letter from. And so she is at a church uh, called uh, Syncria, and, and she is serving there. The word for servant, now if you're reading out of the ESV like I am, the word is servant. The Greek word is diakonos. It's the same exact word that we find in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 8 through 13. Phoebe is a deacon at the church of Syncria. 
And so what Phoebe is doing is she has been commissioned by the Apostle Paul to go and carry this letter to all the churches in Rome. Now remember, these are all circulation. There, there's not like one building that they would meet in. Like, like if it were Broadmoor, she wouldn't just come to, to this room and be here. It would be to all the houses because that's how the church would be set up, okay? So, so we have this word. She is a diaconos is what Paul says. She's a deacon or a deaconess. Now, if you grew up in Southern Baptist Church, that sounds a little strange to you, okay? So let me, let me offer a quick clarification on the roles and offices that are in the church as given by the scripture, okay? All right, let's go. All right, there's the, the head man of the church. That's not your pastor. That's not me. The head man of God's church is Jesus Christ. So Christ is the head of the church. He is the lead shepherd. So when, we, when we're looking through the I am statements, he says, I am the good shepherd. So when we see offices in the church, the one who holds the highest office in all the land and the big C church all across the world is Jesus Christ, for he is the head. And then under there, you have a, a group of people that are called pastors, elders, and overseers. It would be one group as if they were together. They are considered under shepherds. Under shepherds of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the way the Bible explains this very clearly is that that is males only as qualified by the scriptures. They have a very specific task. Here's the task that an under shepherd has as in a pastor, an elder, an overseer. They are in charge of teaching, preaching, oversight of church health, and oversight of solid theology in the church. That is what the under shepherds do. That is what the, the pastor, elder, and overseers are responsible for. Then, as you are moving through the, the church structure, we see that deacons are called. Deacons, as we see here, can be male or female as qualified by the scriptures. Their responsibilities in the biblical term are table washers. They're servants of the church, providing physical care or services so that pastors, elders, and overseers can focus on the teaching, preaching, and church health and theology. Now, you may be thinking, Josh, I grew up Southern Baptist. I've never heard that a day in my life. All right, you, you may have grown up just having preachers and deacons, but let me, let me explain to you. I think you had them all. Let me, let me explain how. You and your church may have never used those words to describe your church leaders, but I promise you had them in function. For example, if your church only had preachers and deacons, but no elders, more than likely you had a group of only men who met usually once a month to discuss not just service of the church, but the business of the church, the ministries of the church, to make sure that the theology of the church was being upheld. That's what elders do. And so you may have grown up in a church that had deacons, but they functioned as elders as according to the scripture. You had elders, you just didn't use the term to describe them, but they functioned that way. Also in those type churches, you may not have had women with the name deacon, but I guarantee you, you had them in function. And I promise you that is a good thing because your church would have failed if you didn't. Josh, what do you mean? Think back when you were growing up. When you had an event at the church, who were the ones who generally were in charge of the tables? Who organized them? Who set them? Who filled them? And who cleaned them? 
Typically, it were the women of the church. The church mothers did that. When there was a death in the church or a birth in the church, who were the first ones that would make the meals, deliver the meals, spend time with the, the, the mourning family or the celebrating family? They were there to see what they needed. Who were those people? Typically, it were the women and the church mothers. So you may not have called the women in your church deacons, but the women in your church sure did deek. And you were better off for it. We were all better off for it. We are better off for it. Now that we are clear on church offices as we are given by the scriptures, who can and, and how it should be done, okay? Now that that's clear, let's get back to Deacon Phoebe, okay? Now we can, now we can hear. More than likely, Phoebe is the deliverer of this letter to all the churches who are in Rome. More than likely, she has been given full authority by the Apostle Paul on his, on his behalf to answer any question that may come up in the reading of this letter. That's why Paul says, welcome her in the Lord in a way that is worthy of the saints and help her in whatever she may need from you. She has been a patron of many and myself as well. So why is Paul talking about her in this letter to the church at Rome? Because Paul is in Corinth when he writes this. She is a deacon in the church in Corinth. So any encouragement that they have received from this letter, what he wants them to know is more than likely they have been encouraged by her and they may just not know her name yet. Paul says that she's been a patron of many and myself as well. What does a patron mean? It means a financial helper. Evidently, she was wealthy and bankrolled a lot of Paul's ministry. Praise God for generous people. Praise God for people who see that gifting comes in all shapes and sizes, and some people may not be able to go or do or to preach and teach, but they have means, so they give to, to make sure that the gospel is sent out. But she's not the only one that the Apostle Paul mentions. He goes on to list many who served with him and served the Roman church from a distance. And Paul tells them, now here's where you're going to give me grace. Are you excited? Let's go. Verse 3 and following. We're going to cover a lot of ground. Greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Jesus Christ, who risked their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Greet also uh, the church in their house. Greet my loved Epinetus, who was the first convert to Christ in Asia. Now, we're not going to spend a lot of time here, but these are two beautiful things. If you go back to, to, to Acts, if you remember us setting up day one in Romans, and we talked about how the Apostle Paul is in jail, and, and the, the, the Roman emperor at the time kicks out all the Jews, and then there's these two that come out, and they find themselves in Corinth. We have Prisca and Aquila. And so this is really the whole reason the letter's getting back to them, for they are saying this is what's happened in the church. And then the very first convert in Asia, Paul is saying, I want you to give thanks for them. Verse 6, greet Mary who has worked hard for you, Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners. They're in prison with Paul. They are well known to the apostles, and they, are, they were in Christ before me. Greet Amprietus, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, my fellow worker in Christ, and my beloved Stachys. Greet Apelleus, who is approved in Christ. Greet those who belong to the family of Aristobulus. Greet my kinsman Herodian, 
Greet those of the Lord who belong to the family of Narcissus. Greet those uh, workers in the Lord of Tryphena and Tryphosa. Greet the beloved uh, Parisa who has worked hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, and also his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. Greet Asyncritus and Phlegon and Hermes and Patrobus and Hermes uh, and Hermas and, brother, uh, and, and the brother who was with them. Greet Philolagus, Julia, Nuris, and his sister, and Olympus, and all the saints who are with them. We're not gonna read that again, congratulations. What did you notice about those verses other than they have really hard names to pronounce? Paul used their first names. And that's a big deal. I know a lot of times, again, just to, to reiterate, a lot of times when we read letters in the Bible, we get to the very last couple of chapters and we think, oh, these are just throwaway chapters. Let's just go ahead to the next book of the Bible and get into the good stuff. Church, I'm telling you, this is the good stuff. For if we look back at the theology, if we look back at the application, if we look back at the heart for a man who's in prison, writing a letter, hoping and longing to be with these people, whose, whose heart is stirred and united with them, how did that happen? Because of all of these people in the Apostle Paul's life. He knew them by name. He walked with them. These are the people he did life with in ministry. Paul uses a lot of first names of people that he knew and loved well, people that served alongside him. It can be easy to read Paul's letter and get the idea that he's some kind of super Christian, that he's able to do things that regular old us can't do, but that's not the case. Paul was not a Lone Ranger missionary. In the same way that Paul was not a Lone Ranger missionary, we can't and should not be either. We need people in our lives, especially if we plan on doing what God has called us to do for the long haul. I believe that we could give a call of, of, of mission to you, and I believe that you would be stirred up in a moment. I believe that if we came in here on any given Sunday and we shared a message of, of passion and conviction and said, now's the time to go, you would go and be on fire for the next couple of hours. And then you would go to sleep and you would wake up tomorrow and if it was left and into yourself, the passion would begin to wane. You may still think about it, but it wouldn't be on the forefront. You would go throughout your day, Tuesday would come, Wednesday would come, and it would be the furthest thing from your mind. The next week when you would gather, you would say, oh yeah, I forgot about that. This letter shows us a better way. Because what would happen is, if you receive that message of passion and vision, and it's compelling to you, but it's not just you, but you find yourself linked to others in life, and you all share the same vision and mission, then you are more than likely going to stay on mission. That's why we are better together than we are separate. That's why Paul fights for, from Romans chapter 1 to Romans chapter 16, unity in God's church. You were not created to do church alone, and neither was I. God has called us to be united as one, for that is how we will fulfill the mission given to us. We need people in our lives. Not only do we need people, we need people that we know on a first-name basis. We need people that are going to give us deep community that only the Holy Spirit can create. Without spending too much time here, I want to double down on something. 
We say often that we are a family of faith. It's in our mission statement. I'll say it in just a moment. We use the word family intentionally because I believe it's a biblical term. But if we understand ourselves in a family of faith, that should bring not only ownership to the task, but a sense of connection that wouldn't be there in just a transaction. For example, think about the family that you have, your your family of origin or your family that you do life with every single day. Husbands, think about your wives. Wives, think about your husbands. Kids, think about your parents. Parents, think about your kids. Think about all those that you were doing life with. If they had a need and you had the ability to meet that need, what would be able to stop you from meeting that need? Nothing. If, if you, if, if for your family, if you have food to offer to them, and they come to you and they say, I'm hungry, and you see that they're hungry, would you keep that food from them or would you do everything it would take to get it to them? That would just be right there. Take it back a step. Parents of college students, parents of grown children, you're at your house, you're enjoying your day, life is good, you get a phone call from your kid who is two states away and they say, mom and dad, I need you. What's your next move? Grab the keys and go. I'll figure out what you need while I'm on my way. There's nothing that's gonna stop you from getting to your family and loving them and caring for them and making sure that they have what they need. Same way that you have extended family and you love them and you know them and they're four states away and they call you in the middle of the night and they say, I'm in trouble. Do you say, man, call me in the morning. Some of y'all be like, yeah, I did, sorry. No. Your heart stirs with compassion. You figure out what's going on and you're going to do whatever it takes to give them the help that they need. Change the scenario. It's 2 a.m. The phone rings. You don't know the number. For whatever reason, you answer. Somebody on the other end whom you don't know begins to tell you things that they need. What are you more likely to do? What's the difference? One's family and one's not. Paul says we need family. We need to view each other as family. For when we do, we are more than willing to make sure that what we have is what everybody else has. That's when we get to Acts chapter 2 and we begin to see what happens at Pentecost and, and the Holy Spirit is breathing life in all the people. And it says, and those who had sold what they had to make sure that those who were in need had everything that they needed. Why did they do that? Because they were family. We need each other. We need to understand that we are family. Verse 16, Paul takes it a step further. He says, greet one another with a holy kiss. And all the churches of Christ greet you. Now, this statement may sound strange, but it shouldn't. The sentiment here is greet and treat each other like family because that's exactly what we are. In the Roman culture and many others then and now, a kiss on the cheek is a sign of acceptance and warm greeting. To kiss someone on the cheek is to say, welcome to the family. Now, I've been in Madison three years the first go and coming up on three years the second go. Y'all don't really do that here. You ever been down to South Mississippi, South Louisiana? Man, they kiss a lot down there. I thought that was normal. 
Like, like in, in here, it's a handshake into a hug. That's how you know your family. So we're here, we're here, and we're here. That's this, okay? That's not where I grew up. That's not my people. Like when my mama comes and all of them show up, you just got to be warned, okay? I'm just warning you. Because it starts here, then goes into the hug, and then you better offer the cheek because you're going to get a kiss regardless if you want it or not. My wife found out the hard way. We were dating, just dating, two weeks. I took her to a crawfish bowl down in Dodd country. I didn't warn her about my uncles. So we walk in and they're super friendly. <laughs> so we walk in and, and, it's, it, and it's here and it's here and, and I, I forgot to tell her, you gotta turn your cheek. She didn't and it got weird. <laughs> my uncle kissed my wife before I did. I don't know what to do with it. We're married 16 years, we're still working through it. It's how you know in my family that you're accepted. Just growing up, that, that's what it was. If it's a handshake, you're a stranger. If you get a kiss on the cheek, you're home. That's what Paul's saying here. Whether it's a kiss on the cheek in reality or not, you better treat each other like you would your family. And so I pray, I pray that even, even just without trying to, trying to preach to the end, I want us to understand the preaching. What Paul is saying is the church of God is the most effective when we understand that we are family. And the enemy of God wants nothing more than to steal, kill, and destroy. And he starts with family. So church, we must fight with everything in us to maintain unity and the bond of peace. For the glory of Christ and for the good of the mission. As we continue on, we understand that we are a united family of faith. Joining Jesus Christ on his mission for the glory of God and the good of our communities. That is what makes Christ's church beautiful. And that's why Paul gives this warning and encouragement as he closes out this letter. Look at verse 17 and following. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine to which you've been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve the Lord Christ, but their own appetites, and by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you, but I want you to be wise as to what is good, and I want you to be innocent as to what is evil. So Paul ends this letter with two things. One warning and one encouragement. And then sort of a song, which I will not sing. Here's the warning. Don't let people inside the church or outside the church cause divisions or disunity among you. The most precious thing God has trusted to the body of Christ is unity. That is the most precious thing. Well, Josh, are there things that we should disagree on? Sure, there are a hundred different things that you are welcome to disagree on. And you can disagree and I can disagree and we can both still be right with God. Those would be secondary or tertiary issues. But what if they are primary issues? What if it deals with salvation? What, 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 if, it, what if it deals in the way that we are saved? What if it deals in the way that, that God is God? 
Those are issues worth fighting over. That's why he says here, going back to verse 17, I appeal, I beg you, brothers and sisters, to watch out for those who would cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the what? Doctrine that you've been taught. So the reason Romans, I believe, is one of the most well-loved books of the Bible, we think it's because of the application. While that is good, it is the theology and doctrine that we receive in the first part of the book. For there are no other books in the Bible that give us that in-depth view. How can you know what's error if you don't know the truth? So you have to know doctrine. You have to know why you believe what you believe to make sure that somebody doesn't come in with smooth talking and lead you astray. That's the divisiveness that can happen in the church. I know, I know a lot of times you've heard of church splits happening over the color of the carpet or I don't like that style of music, but I'm telling you, it comes down much deeper than that. It is the theology that splits them. Well, Josh, how can that be theology? I think the biggest theological error the church has made and continues to make is they believe, the human believes, they sit on the throne of God when Christ is the one who sits on the throne. And we begin to think that our personal preference trumps everything else. And that's why when we look at churches who split over color of the carpet or worship style or this or that or the other, it has nothing to do with the carpet or the worship style. It has everything to do with a sinful heart who wants its own way. When we come to Christ, we come dead. When we come to Christ, we come empty. And he breathes new life and new purpose into us. And so when we see each other, that's why when we, we look at the scriptures in Ephesians 6, we do not battle against flesh and blood, for that's dead. We battle against the darkness and the principalities of this current age. We've got to fight. We've got to fight with all that we are to make sure that we don't place ourselves on the throne of glory. That belongs to Christ and Christ alone. So don't let somebody come in telling you it's about you. Well, let somebody come in telling you it's about what you want and what you desire. It has nothing to do about what you want and desire. It has everything to do with what God wants and desires. And if you don't know the word, you'll never know what that is. Don't let them come in and fool you. Don't let people speak into your life. Smooth talking, cunning, because the naive are going to be led astray because of the doctrine that they bite into. That's the warning. Fight for unity. The unity is the lifeblood for the health of the church, and it is lifeblood for the focus of the mission. But then there's an encouragement. The encouragement is this. Paul makes a big statement that would have brought Christ followers great encouragement then, and when we understand it, will bring us great encouragement today. Verse 20 says this. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. And the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. Now, again, if you know your Bible, there was a promise given in Genesis that one day Satan's head would be crushed. But who would do it? Christ would do it. That was the promise that we would have, that there was one who would come, who the enemy who was trying to devour us would be eternally killed, and it would be from the heel of the Savior. But what happens here is Paul's using a different wording, and he says the God of, God of peace will soon crush Satan under whose feet? Your feet. 
Wait, wait, is this, is this that cunning thing again where Jesus is supposed to be and he puts himself in? Nope, not at all. Paul is reminding them and us that if we have surrendered to the lordship of Jesus Christ, then we have gained the victory and authority of Jesus Christ. And so when the enemy is crushed by our trust and obedience, it is all glory to God and none to us. Simply what he is saying is it's not going to be much longer now, Christian. Hang in there. It's not going to be much longer from here. Now, if your church history reminds you, as Paul writes this letter, they're about eight years away from Rome burning down. It's not going to be much longer, Christian, until Christ comes and brings you home and takes away the effect of Satan on your life. But then then Paul goes back to to end this letter to his friends list. Look at verse 21. Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you. So does Lucius and Jason. Jason's the easiest one to say in all of them. So Sipiter, my kinsman, and I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. Time out. I thought Paul wrote this letter. This guy is the scribe. So as Paul would speak, he would write. And that's why when you get to some letters, Paul says, and I'm writing to you. You can see it with my own handwriting. So when you see that there is something here that that as he is writing, it's just a scribe. I want you to be clear. All right, 23. Gaius, who is host to me and the whole church, greets you. Erastus, the city treasurer, and our brother Quirinius greets you. After Paul completes his mama Nim's friend list, he ends the letter with a doxology. Doxology are two words put together, glory and speaking. So essentially Paul ends by speaking God's glory. Now without diving too deep into it before I get into the doxology, you will notice something more than likely. Your Bible goes 21, verse 21, look at it. 22, 23, what's the next one? 25. Did they miscount? Is that a misprint? Is that an editorial error? This is called a textual variant, meaning that what was once in there was not false, but it wasn't in the original script as it stands. And so there's a lot of times that that is in some versions of the Bible and not in others. More than likely, you're going to have a little note there that if you go to the footnote, it's going to tell you more about that. Now, let's just be clear before we get into the doxology. It's always good to know a little bit more about your Bible. When the gospel writers, when the <clears throat> Paul writes this, when, when the other apostles are writing, they didn't write in chapter and verse. I know many of you know this, but let me, let me say it so we can all hear. They weren't saying, all right, chapter one, verse one, go. It's just a letter. These chapters and verses are added much later in history so that we can find them a lot easier. So when you see something skipping from 23 to 25, don't feel worried. This is the holy, inspired, inerrant word of God. With that being said, let's jump into the doxology. Verse 25 and following. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel, in the preaching of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the, uh, the mystery that was kept secret for long ages. Who's the hymn, by the way, in this doxology? It's Christ. 
able to strengthen you. The word picture here is to prop you up and to sustain you. That's a beautiful picture when you're exhausted, when you're worn out, when you feel beat down and oppressed. Verse 26, but it's now been disclosed through the prophetic writings, has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about obedience of faith. So a question that may come up. Why do we teach others everything that we've been taught according to the Great Commission? Why do we preach and teach? Why do we go to all the nations? This answers the question. To bring about the obedience of faith. When we teach, when we declare, when the reason, the very, very reason that I stand here each and every week and preach to you and don't just say, hey, I want you to kind of sort this out on your own because I want you in hearing God's word to be able to internalize it and then respond to it. Not in walking an aisle, although we are here for that, but for you to walk in obedience in your faith when you leave this building. That's why we teach, that's why we preach, that's why we do everything we do and point to the sufficiency of God's word. To help others better know how they are to follow and obey Christ. And as our worship team comes, there's one last verse. To the only wise God, be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. He, God, God the Father, is the only wise God. Wisdom will be found in no one else or nothing else but him. So what do we do with all that we've learned from this amazing letter? We glorify God the Father through our relationship with Jesus Christ, the Son. That's what this says. To the only wise God be glory forevermore. How? Through Jesus Christ. How do we bring God glory forever? Through Jesus Christ. Again, I want to make the, the, the something that, that's probably really big as simple as I can make it. The reason that I talk often about if this hour is the only part of your Christian journey that you would say is visible, I would say we're missing it. Here, here's why. Because if, if we want to glorify God in church, we are created to, it's going to happen in every second and with every breath that we have left in our body. And the way that we bring God the most glory, glory is a term of weight. And it's this idea, and I'm going to use this as, as, as a very poor illustration, but hopefully it makes sense, that we are going around and we are collecting glory. What would glory be according to God's word? Trust, obedience, faithfulness, steadfastness, encouraging brothers and sisters, calling sinners to repentance, living lives that are faithful to one another and faithful to God. We pick up all that glory and we say, God, it's yours. That's what we mean when we say glorify God. We pick up all the glory we can get and we give it to him. We are glory getters for God. That's why your every day matters. And that's why the question now becomes, you're picking up glory every day. The question is, who are you offering it to? 
Do you say, this is all mine? All those things that I did were because of me. All those things that I've accomplished, they were, they were there because I was smart or I worked hard or because I got this a certain kind of way. Or do we say, God, it's always been yours? Well, how do you do that? How do you remain faithful in the call of glory getting through a relationship with whom? Jesus Christ. When we walk with the Lord in the light of his word, we begin to see things we didn't see before. We begin to experience things in a way that we've never experienced them before. And we now take our theology and our doctrine and we now apply it to our lives. And we look around and we say, hey, everybody else is doing that too. It's time to go, church. It's time to to live our lives linked arm in arm, putting the pettiness aside, keeping our eyes on the one who sustains us every day in Jesus Christ. And in that, bring him all glory, all honor, and all praise. So how do we end this letter? Like as a church, how do we end 30 weeks in, in in this letter? I would say in the very same way that the Apostle Paul ends this letter with one word, amen. The word literally means, yes, Lord, let everything that has been said be true. So, what are you going to do with what you've heard? What are you going to do with the call that has been trusted to you? I pray that your answer is amen. Lord, let it be true of me. Would you pray with me? Father, we love you. Thank you for today. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the last 30 weeks in this letter. It has been so good for me. It has been transformative to my heart and my mind. And I pray that it has been across this room. Help us, Father, see each other as we should, as brothers and sisters in the fight with one another, not fighting with one another. Help us see your church as we should. Not as a place built for our preferences, but a place built for your glory. Help us understand our life as we should. That we are to go and bring you glory in our relationship with Jesus Christ. And one day, Father, we will see you face to face. But until then, help us to remain faithful. Help us to trust and help us to obey. Jesus, we love you. And it's in your name that we pray and we now stand and respond. Church, would you stand with me?